I'll open us in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for gathering us together on this day to worship you. We're thankful that before we embark on our formal corporate worship service that you've given us this time to set aside to, to study your word and the, the things that you have, you have given us to learn more about yourself, to learn more about redemptive history of how you have brought the Messiah into the world to save us. Lord, we pray that this time will be a blessing to us. It will be fruitful in our, our spiritual lives, that you will be glorified in all. We pray that you, you bless this time together and that uh, the saints are blessed as well. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so today we're going to be covering most of Esther chapter 2. We're going to save the, the last few verses for next week. Um, I think it kind of kind of fits better with chapter 3. But uh, before we, we go into the text, uh, I'm going to kind of reset the stage here. We've got some people that uh, haven't been in the past two lessons. The Two Sundays ago, I did a, an introduction to the book. Last Sunday, we did chapter 1. So let me just kind of... Uh, set up the stage and what we're going to what we're going to see in chapter 2 here. So remember that now this is this is uh, 4 in the mid 400s BC, so 480s, 470s BC. We're in Persia, which is the biggest empire in the world at the time. Uh, Greece is starting to become a world empire, but Persia reaches from Basically, the, the tip of India all the way to current-day Pakistan, into India, all the way up to Greece, down to Africa, um, kind of on the borders of Africa and the Mediterranean and the Indian Ocean. So Persia is this, this giant empire right now. And um, in the first chapter, we have this king Ahasuerus, which is his Hebrew name. This is King Xerxes that we call him in the West. Uh, he has thrown this elaborate party, this six-month party, in order to drum up some support for his war that he's about to go fight against Greece. They're still trying to take over Greece. His, his father, Darius, a couple of years before, had been beaten back by Greece. And so Xerxes is trying to go into Greece again, and he's throwing this six-month party to where he can drum up some more, more support to, to go invade Greece again. And in the middle of this, or actually at the very end of it, he throws this week-long feast where there's tons of food for everyone in Susa, which is one of the capitals, which is where we're at right now. There's tons of food. There's, there's tons of drinking. The wine is overflowing. The people don't just have to drink when the king drinks. They can drink as much wine as they want to. Uh, the, peop, the, uh, the officials in the court, they've been drinking, which is apparently how they make uh, state decisions in Persia at the time. They, they like to do that while they were drinking. And then um, as kind of the, the crowning piece of the whole party, King Xerxes calls in his wife, Queen Vashti, who is apparently very beautiful, and he summons her to come before all of his war council wearing her royal wardrobe and her crowns with all of her jewels and everything. And this is supposed to further inspire all the men to go out to war to fight with Greece. But instead of coming before them as this trophy to be displayed, Queen Vashti, for some reason, refuses to do so. And this obviously is a great embarrassment for Xerxes. And so he goes to his uh, seven closest advisors and asks, what, what can be done about this? What can we do? And they advise him to, to banish Queen Vashti and put someone else as queen instead of her. And so that is where we are. He goes in and they, he uh, 
puts forth this royal edict, and he sent at the last verse of chapter one, he sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. So uh, they were scared that uh, Queen Vashti was going to inspire all the women to rise up against their husbands, and they send out this law that says, don't do that. And that's where we are. And so now, actually, before we begin chapter 2, three years are going to pass. Uh, we don't get that detail until verse 16 of chapter 2. Uh, after we've been introduced to Esther and Mordecai, it says, uh, Esther's taken into King Ahasuerus in the royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign. So we started out back in chapter 1 in the third year of his reign. And so... Uh, Three years are going to pass before the beginning of chapter 2 because Esther is going to spend a year in this beautification process. Uh, so keep that in mind. Three years have passed between the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. And in these three years, uh, we have extra-biblical sources, pretty much the source of all of the, the information that we have about the Persian Empire in the West. Uh, this uh, Greek historian named Herodotus, he tells us that in these three years that Persia was at war with Greece pretty much the whole time. And the campaign against Greece did not go as planned. Xerxes had suffered a humiliating defeat, which had depleted a lot of the treasury of the empire. And then his subjects are starting to kind of look at him with disdain. So everything that happened in chapter 1 to drum up support, uh, apparently it somewhat worked at least, so they have this war campaign against Greece. They get beaten back pretty well, and so people are starting to, to grumble a bit. And during this three-year period, Xerxes, is, he's starting to indulge himself even more, especially with the women of his empire, and especially including those who are married to his officers. And so uh, even these, the seven closest advisors, uh, Herodotus tells us that, that Xerxes, he's, he's starting to, to fool around with a lot of the, the married women and even the women that are close to the men that are close to him. Um, and so this actually, we don't get this in Esther, but uh, Xerxes, just spoiler alert, he ends up being assassinated by his bodyguard about eight years after the book of Esther ends. And so this kind of led, led to that. Uh, a lot of the men, because of Xerxes fooling around with their wives obviously would get pretty mad at him. And so one of his bodyguards, because of this, ends up assassinating him. And so he hasn't actually, even though you know he's messing around with all these women, he hasn't had an official queen for quite some time. And now at the beginning of the chapter, he starts to, to get to thinking that he needs one. And so as we, we're going to read this chapter, just as a reminder, let's keep in mind of the thing that we're going to keep in mind as we're studying the book of God's providence. Let's keep in mind God's providence as we read. We still, later on, Haman is still going to come to power. He's still going to seek to destroy the, the Jews. God's covenant of grace, you know, starting in Genesis 3, Jeremiah 31, his covenant with Abraham, his covenant with David are still in place. The, the Messiah still has to come from the tribe of Judah. And the Jewish people are still going to need someone on the throne who will be an advocate for them when Haman starts to develop his plot. So let's see in this chapter how God strings together a series of improbable events to bring this ruler to the throne that needs to deliver the Jewish people. So chapter 2, we're going to read verses 1 through 18 for today. <clears throat> Esther chapter 2, verse 1. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, 
He remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them. And let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the queen, and he did so. Pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle. For she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go in to King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this is the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went in to the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shagaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. So she would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except with Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus and to his royal palace, in the tenth month, which is the month of Tibeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. This is the reading of God's word. And so the first bit of information we're given is that Xerxes now seems to desire a queen. For some reason, three years have passed since he last had a queen, and now, uh, we'll say it by divine providence, he now desires a queen. Just like the previous chapter, he is going to be swayed by some advisors. Uh, in the previous chapter, it was his, his seven court officials. This chapter, it's uh, curiously uh, just some, some young men who are around him. Um, taking the advice of, of young men, sometimes not a good thing. And this, is, this seems to be a pattern for Xerxes. 
pattern has been established. He doesn't really seem to be thinking for himself as the ruler of Persia. Um, he's got these advisors that he really just seems to listen to, and we're going to see that play out whenever Haman comes along with his plot. Xerxes kind of just goes along exactly with it. So just a, a curious pattern to note there. And these young men have advised Xerxes to choose his next queen by a royal beauty contest among the virgins of the land. And this is actually a very highly unusual way to choose a queen, pretty much anywhere in the world, and especially in Persia at this time. Queens in the, the Persian Empire were typically chosen from among the nobility and often from the, the families of the seven advisors. Uh, this may have been why uh, Memucon, in the previous chapter, had actually advised uh, Xerxes to cast away Vashti. Maybe he was making some sort of play for a, a woman in his family to become queen. We don't know that, but just speculation. And then, other than the queen, in addition to, to one wife, which would have been the queen, or wives... The king would have concubines, often hundreds. We're told uh, later that, uh, that Artaxerxes II, who was Xerxes' grandson, had 350 concubines. And so uh, lots of wives, lots of concubines. This, this also happens in Israel, we see. And most of the women that are going into this royal beauty contest that, that we're told about in the second chapter, they're going to be relegated to being concubines. So concubines, which also happened in Israel, were virgins who would spend one night with the king and then they would be deposed of, completely deposed of to live in a life of celibate luxury in a separate house with the rest of the concubines unless the king summoned for them again. So this, this was the fate that Esther is headed for. Have to have to realize that, that uh, through divine providence, uh, Esther is going to earn favor in the sight of the king, but... All these other women, they're going to spend one night with the king. They're going to be cast out to the house of the concubines and never to be seen by the king again unless he calls for them by name. Hundreds of women like this. Um, as a side note, it, it didn't really seem to be, especially in Persia, just the women that got treated like this. Uh, Herodotus tells us that uh, 500 young men were usually round up in the same way and they were castrated to serve as eunuchs in the court as well. So this, just, this wasn't a pure sexism thing at all. Uh, the young women and the young men were, were at the service of the king, and they were, he was, they were there to, for him to use in whatever way he pleased. And so all the eunuchs that we hear about in Esther, uh, they were gathered up in kind of a similar way. And so this is the fate Esther's headed for. She's probably going to be relegated to being one of these concubines, like all the rest of these virgins here. Virgins here. And then in verse 8... We are ushered into an introduction to the two protagonists of the book. First Mordecai and then Esther, his cousin. Mordecai here is described as, in verse 5, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. Um, so before, before we get confused now, remember that the kingdom splits, Israel's kingdom splits into northern and southern kingdom. The tribe of Benjamin actually is, gets kind of absorbed into the tribe of Judah. So all of the Benjaminites here are actually considered Judeans. They're considered part of the tribe of Judah when they get exiled to Babylon. And so let's, let's not be confused here. The, even though the Messiah still has to become from the formal tribe of Judah because he's going to be coming from the Davidic line, he's going to be a son of David, um, here, uh, the Benjaminites are considered part of the tribe of Judah here. So uh, Mordecai and Esther are 
not technically going far back to the 12 tribes. They're from Benjamin, but now they're considered from the tribe of Judah. And so here, back to the text, it's the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. The author here is trying to make a connection to a specific person in Israel's history. Any guesses who that is? Might be somewhat obvious. Saul. Yeah, King Saul. So um, Saul, whose father was, was Kish, a Benjaminite, we are, we're not sure that if, if Mordecai's actual great-grandfather's name was Kish or if, here, if he's making, if the author's making some sort of um, naming just of an ancestor. You see this in Hebrew and, uh, genealogy quite a bit. You know, they don't go in specific order. Um, obviously, if, if Kish was Mordecai's great-grandfather, this wouldn't have been the same Kish that uh, was Saul's father. But he could be just making a connection that uh, somewhere down the line, Mordecai is a son of Saul's father. Uh, we're not, not 100% sure. But this is going to be very important whenever we're introduced to Haman in chapter 3, whenever he introduces Haman as an Agagite. Ag- Ag- um, I'll come to that next week, though. Also, it isn't actually very clear if Mordecai was the one that was taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar or if Kish, his uh, ancestor, was taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar. You see here, um, you know, it kind of depends on how you interpret that after the comma. Son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah. So we don't know if this reference is back to Mordecai or if this is to Kish. Uh, one kind of curious thing, if it is referring to Mordecai, then Mordecai would have been about 120 years old right now. Uh, so that kind of leads me personally to believe that he's actually referring to Kish here. I, you know, not firm on that or anything. But the point is, is that Mordecai, he's an, he's an exile in Persia with a connection to Israel's first king. And then he's introduced as the caretaker and adoptive father figure for his cousin Esther. We're given her Hebrew name, Hadassah, which is the only Hebrew name that we are given in the book. Uh, Mordecai is, seems to be his, his Persian name. We're not given his Hebrew name. And uh, just as a side note, I didn't include this in my notes here, but it's interesting to include. Uh, Mordecai actually, uh, so Esther and Vashti, there's not a whole lot of extra biblical references to them. Mordecai there is. Um, and some extra-biblical references, uh, a man named Marduka, which uh, seems to be uh, Marduk was a, a deity in the Persian religion, so it seems to be referencing some sort of worshiper of, of the Persian deity. But uh, there are, there's some evidence to kind of connect him back to the, the Mordecai in the book of Esther. Um, we kind of see this, you know, even in the book of Daniel, Daniel and, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are actually their Babylonian names. Daniel's was, um, escapes me now. Point being is that a lot of these, a lot of the, the Hebrews that were taken into captivity, they took on names from their captors. And Esther is her, her uh, Persian name too. So we're going to be referring to these two Hebrews by their Persian names. And the, uh, the only thing we, we know about Esther, other than she had no father or mother, we're given her father's name later, Abihail. But the only thing that we know about her was that she was, she was very beautiful. And this, this young virgin is then going to be taken 
to, complete, to compete in this royal beauty pageant. She quickly earns favor with the top eunuch, Hegai, he is, who is in charge of all of these girls. And then we're told almost as a footnote that Esther, following the command of Mordecai, hides the fact that she is a Jew, which almost certainly would, would lead her to, to violate some of the Mosaic laws, at least the dietary laws, because if she's going to be partaking in the feasts that are given by the king, uh, she's probably going to be eating of the food if she's hiding the fact that she is a Jew. Um, the author is completely silent on whether this was a good thing or not. We don't know. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but the, the point being is that there's some, some, some of God's laws for the people of Israel are being, being violated right here. And so after a, a year of beautification, Esther has her one night with the king. If she was to have the same fate as the rest of the women... This would be likely the only time she would ever be with him. She would only ever see him this once. She would like, he would likely never summon her again, as he did with most of the women. So she wisely asks one of the king's closest servants what she should bring in with her. So these women had the, the choice to bring whatever they wanted with them to the king. And he, she wisely goes to the, this, his, this close advisor, Haggai, and asks what she should bring. We aren't told exactly what happened that night, but Esther obviously pleased Xerxes in, in a way that none of the other women had, for this Jewish orphan is now the queen of the most powerful empire in the world. So this, this chapter brings up some, some difficulties morally. What can we learn from this chapter? A chapter in which the heroes of the book, members of God's covenant community, are making questionable moral decisions. We aren't given any details about any internal struggles that Esther might have had. We aren't told if she or, or Mordecai made the correct decisions. Uh, I have my, my opinions on that, uh, but we aren't told. The author is completely silent about that. And by implication, the Holy Spirit is, is silent through what he's given us about that. We're just told that these things happened. That's it. They happened. I, I, I tend to lean to the side that the actions were sinful um, but you know, we, don't, we don't know that for sure. Regardless, I think we can all agree that either way, uh, very difficult decisions had to be made on the part of, of Mordecai and Esther here. And this is, this is often the case in our lives as well. We make decisions that, that sometimes lie in moral gray areas, uh, hard decisions. We even act in ways that are direct violations of God's law and grieve him by our daily sinfulness. I know I do. Thankfully, most of our sins are small ones. Don't get me wrong, these are no less heinous than the large sins. However, I'm sure that, that it would not take hardly any effort on my part to recall some pretty massive sins and moral failings from my past, and I suspect that this is the case for, for all of you as well. But, but we have hope. We have much, much more hope than Esther could have had. We don't have some a shambled temple that's far off from where we live for the blood of bulls and goats, which couldn't take away their sins anyway. We have the final perfect sacrifice, and all of our sins, no matter how great or small, were paid for on the blood-soaked ground of Calvary by the lashes and pierced hands of our Savior and the wrath of God that was poured out on him. We have no need to repent of past sins. If we have repented for them, they're cast on the cross. We have no need to dwell on them. 
Yes, we should grieve over our sin, for it's the slap, a slap in the face of an infinitely holy God. We should be grieved over an offense against our holy God. But to dwell on past sins is to question the efficacy of the cross. So let's not do that. Let's rejoice and praise our Savior because our sins have been completely cast away and we are no longer condemned by, condemned by them. That's what we can draw out of this chapter. Esther, um, we have more hope than she did. Even if these are questionable moral decisions, even if she did sin, she has a temple that has to be continually sacrificed at with the blood of bulls and goats. Cannot take away the sins. We have a Savior that has done that. So let's not dwell on our past sins. Let's look forward to worshiping our Savior and praising him because our sins have been forgiven. But what else can we learn from this chapter? A chapter in which the heroes of the book, members of God's covenant community, are making questionable moral decisions again. I think uh, this issue is actually it's best handled in Reformed theology because it's, it's really kind of tough for, for dispensationalists and biblicists to, to kind of handle passages like this. Um, it's not completely true, but kind of they tend to look at Old Testament merely as history with some moral applications. It's really tough to handle a chapter like this if you're not, not looking at the overall picture of the Bible. And so what are we, what are we to do with this chapter again for those who, uh, of us who believe that, that covenant theology is a better framework? We can read this with the, the bigger picture in mind. We have to keep in mind the, the full story of redemptive history and how God is still planning to, be, to bring the Messiah. God's covenant of grace still needs to be fully realized. God's covenant with David is still true. The Messiah still has to come from David. The Jews need someone to save them from Haman's plot to come so that the Davidic line could be preserved. And some commentators are going to argue that Mordecai and Esther are acting grossly immoral. These are good, godly men who argue this. They're immoral and sinful in this chapter. Other good and godly men are going to say that they're behaving in a God-honoring way. Uh, I, I don't really take that firm a position either direction, because I, I think that's not really the point. The author of the book is deliberately silent about any morality of any actions that happen. So the main purpose here is not to give us more role models like we can get from a lot of the other places in the Bible. It's to detail how God is faithful to his promises, even in the minutia. We've seen here, I mean, just in this chapter, there's at least six kind of very small events that need to happen for the Jews to be preserved and for the Messiah to come. So God is faithful to his promises, even in the minutia. Even in our everyday lives, God is faithful to his promises. God is still working out his plan of salvation for the church and his plan for the Messiah to return to us. And uh, I'm going to finish quite a bit early today. But I wanted to finish with a quote from, from Karen Jobes, who I read from last week, who's kind of been my main source of, of study for the book. Here's what she says. The story of Esther and Mordecai shows the wonderful chain of events God used to fulfill his covenant promises to his people. Therefore, the book of Esther has theological implications for the church today. God continues to work through divine providence to fulfill the promises of his covenant with us in Jesus Christ. Through providential circumstances, people have the opportunity to hear and respond to the gospel. Through providential circumstances, Christians are conformed to the likeness of his son, Romans 8, 29. 
And through providence, God is directing all of history towards its close in the return towards its close in the return of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're here to celebrate today. We're here to celebrate our Savior. We're here to pray that Jesus returns quickly. We're here to keep in mind that God, through his divine providence, has given us everything we need to live our lives, to build up the church, and to look forward to the second coming of our Savior. And with that, um, I'm done for the day. I couldn't go into chapter 3, um, or we'd, we'd run over time. So next week we will, we will cover chapter 3. And before we close in prayer, does anyone have any questions or, or comments or anything else about the chapter?